0: Lord, thank you so much for this time for us to study your word, to be together as the people of God on the Lord's day. Thank you, Lord, for those that are teaching our children right now. Fill them with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit as we just discuss the importance of your son's baptism and his temptation, how that relates to us. And uh, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for all that you have provided for us in calling us to yourself and providing for us uh, just our salvation. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have in this country. We pray for our friends all over the world, uh, Christians all around the world that do not share such freedoms. We even think of uh, some of our missionaries that we support around the world that have different sufferings and challenges. We pray that you'd be with them as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, We are going to be looking at uh, matthew and one of the questions we're going to be asking is if jesus was sinless um why did he get baptized if you guys were here last week you guys remember there was the question about jesus you know he didn't follow his parents back home after the trip to jerusalem and some raised the question was he being an unruly child Or at the very least, a neglectful child. And uh, looking at the various passages, we determine, no, that Jesus is sinless. Um, But there was something within the relationship between him and his human parents where they should have known. He says to them in Jerusalem, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And so from a young child, Jesus knew that he was supposed to be about his father's business. Thank you so much. You're a gentlewoman and a scholar. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Let me try this out. Oh, that's perfect. All right. So, uh, so we know that Jesus is sinless and he's about his father's business. And so when we come to this particular section of scripture, um. We see the initiation of Christ's ministry. And so we're going to we're just going to jump right in here. Is it OK if I skip all the review and is it OK with you guys? Once I've like studied a lesson, it's kind of like, ah, that was last week. So let's get into the good stuff. So we're going to basically talk about two big ideas. One is the fact that John prepares the way for Christ and then we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is initiated in the in the way that has been opened up for him. And so let's let's spend a little time first of all on just John preparing the way. We're in Matthew chapter 3, and let's read the text at length first, and then we're going to come back and start making some observations. Applications. So starting in verse one of chapter three, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you uh, with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing uh, fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We'll read the section about the baptism here. The actual um, baptism of Christ here in a second. Let's, stick, let's start here just with John the Baptist. First of all, as he prepares the way. <clears throat> he prepares the way in a couple different ways, right? First of all, by uh, preaching repentance. So we see him coming out into this wilderness, which is probably, um, this isn't a totally, this isn't what we would think of as like necessarily a desert, but it's a less populated area. Um, in judea and he's saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the idea of of repentance would be a change of mind he says you are to repent because why the kingdom of heaven is at hand the idea here is that the kingdom that is ruled by heaven is here and ready to be initiated by virtue of the fact that christ the king is on the planet, right? And so they're being called to uh, to think again. Change their mind about their sin. This is one of the calls of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. When And then John the Baptist shows up in the spirit of a prophet calling upon people to repent. And, and this is universally one of the components of gospel preaching on the pages of the New Testament. Is that we need to think again. It's just uh, it's the nature of mankind to minimize sin and to think that our sin really isn't that big of a deal, or to think that our sin is so terrible that God couldn't possibly forgive. It seems like you know there's there's a spectrum there, but people can kind of fit into two general categories: My sin's not that bad, God's not that holy, He's a pretty good guy, right? Or, my sin is so terrible. There's no way that God could possibly forgive me. And so people can be damned in either way. There's going to be prostitutes and priests at the gates of hell, as it said. Some will think they're too sinner, too sinful. Some will think they're too righteous. Um, and so the call is to repent. Think again. Think again about your sin. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is here. Uh, it's, this is uh, his kingdom or his ministry is being initiated and so we also see that prophecies fulfilled with this preaching of john the baptist as matthew says in verse 3 that this is the very guy that the isaiah prophet or the prophet of isaiah was talking about when he says the voice of one crying in the wilderness so there's this prophecy that's very old that is fulfilled by john the baptist and then john the baptist throws, shows up in the consummate prophetic uniform right he shows up in camel's hair and a leather belt. It's not the way that most people dressed at this point. This harkens back to Second Kings chapter one. Elijah he's spoken of as a hairy man who would, has this leather belt, has this odd diet, right? Some people think that the hairy man idea is the fact that he did wear camel's hair. We're not really sure exactly, but if you if you think back to Elijah and that whole setting, I think it's Ahaziah is he falls through the lattice. Do you guys remember that? He falls through his roof. He gets hurt. And he sends his guys out to a prophet of Baal to find out if he's going to die or not. And the Holy Spirit says to Elijah, go intercept them and tell them, yeah, you're going to die. And why are you going to Baal rather than me? So Elijah intercepts. They come back a lot sooner than Ahaziah is expecting. And Why are you back so soon? Because a man of God met us. What did he look like? He's a hairy man with a leather belt. He's like, that's Elijah the Tishbite. I don't like that guy. And Elijah tells him, yes, you're going to die and you should be calling upon Yahweh, not on Baal. And so John the Baptist shows up and he's wearing this type of clothing partially to demonstrate that uh, he really doesn't care about the things of the world. He's not trying to associate with the rich. Uh, He's out here doing a job. Fulfilling prophecy, making straight the paths of the Lord, and he's got the consummate uh, prophetic diet of locusts and honey. So probably roasting his locusts over an open fire, you know, roast nuts, roasting on an open fire, (laughs) (coughs) dipping them in his honey, and uh, and then eating. So you can imagine he's probably not uh, he's not overweight. Right. He's probably a little thin. But from what I understand, I, I don't I'm not a dietitian. I understand that locusts are actually a pretty healthy, pretty healthy diet. And uh, and you mix it in with some Palestinian honey and you're getting some some OK, OK, nourishment. <clears throat> so at this time, it wasn't all that unusual. Well, how should I say this? It was it was kind of like. Uh, a thing to do, if you found out about some prophetic, unusual guy out in the wilderness, a lot of people would want to go out and see him. And uh, in fact, this happened way into the early church period. It's a, uh, you know, it's kind of like I don't know if you guys have ever been to San Francisco and you see some of the weird street shows along the the boulevard. You want to stop and see the street shows. Uh, John the Baptist, no doubt, he would not have been the only guy that's off in some remote area preaching and wearing unusual clothing and doing stuff. Uh, but there's something unique and different about this guy because all of Judea, all of Jerusalem are coming out to him. The Lord is clearly in his ministry. He's not just your average freak show out there. Um, by the way, I mean, this one of the things that Christians actually began to Uh, mistakenly view this type of lifestyle as as equivalent to the holiest lifestyle to where you had kind of like the desert monks of the early church that it was you know like Anthony and whatnot they thought that that was the way that you really can achieve a closer walk with the Lord just a closer walk with thee will go out by yourself in the desert and eat as little food as possible and wear as little clothing as possible, and somehow you'll meet with the Lord. That wasn't really the point that John the Baptist was trying to make. He's trying to point people to Christ. And sure enough, as people often do, they get the wrong message. Um, So strong was John the Baptist and his lifestyle followed that children in the early church, they would play a game called monks and demons. Um, I don't know if you guys ever played cowboys we used to call it cowboys and indians i'm not sure what they call it today Um, cops and robbers right cops and robbers things like that Um, well if you were a little kid growing up in the early church you would play monks and demons and where someone would play the part of saint anthony and then all the other kids would jump around him and they would be the demons trying to tempt him and then he would like banish them and do battle with the demons that's so just what you did. You can still see that kind of stuff, by the way, on uh, Spanish television. Anybody ever watch any uh, Spanish-speaking TV? A little bit? Okay. You don't see this uh, on English TV, but uh, if you watch Spanish TV, especially late at night, I don't know why I was watching late at night television, but you'll see like these Roman Catholic shows where like these priests are like just whipping up on demons and stuff. Not like the American version where the demons win, and but the the priests are like throwing their holy water and just like just really going to ape on the demons. And uh, so, if you want to get a little taste of of the monks and demons, you can stay up late and watch uh, Channel Fifty Two. Anyway, so so we've got John the Baptist here. So he's out here preaching. And prophetic garb, fulfilling prophecy, kingdom of heaven's at hand. Uh, the other way that he's preparing the Lord is not through preach, not just through preaching repentance, but by baptizing with confession of sins. So we see in verse 5 and 6 that all Judea, all the region, they're coming, they're being baptized. This, the idea is they're being actually brought underwater, out of water. As they're coming out of the water, they're confessing sin. The idea here almost certainly is not just that they're saying, I'm a sinner, but as they get out of the water, they're saying, I have committed adultery. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I've been lying about this for years. Um, I'm stealing taxes from the government. So they're confessing specific sins. So this is clearly a move of the Holy Spirit. You don't just see. There is no culture where people just suddenly start blurting out the secrets of their heart um, just for no reason. The Holy Spirit has fallen uh, through the ministry of John the Baptist. People are confessing sin. And so he's preaching repentance. He's baptizing. People are confessing their sins. And also he's preparing the way of the Lord by warning of the wrath to come. And so we see in verse seven that the religious establishment show up, and um, you would think, you know, you really wouldn't expect John the Baptist to be so cruel to these guys. I mean, this is not this w- this is not necessarily a church growth approach to building your church. You know, you have some people that show up at church here at Cornerstone. What if our We had all of our visitors stand up on a Sunday. Pastor Munt looked out there and he noticed several religious people from the community. And he said, brood of vipers, who invited you to Cornerstone? (laughs) But John the Baptist, as a prophet, looks out. He knows the heart of these religious leaders. These are people who, as it were, were raised in the church, so to speak. Right. You've got the very conservative wing of the Pharisees who want to keep the law. And you've got the liberal wing of the Sadducees. These are ones that are trying to rationalize the faith, make it palatable to the Greek mind by denying miracles and resurrections and all the nonsense that's in the Old Testament. And so you've got two different sects there that show up. And John the Baptist continues to preach repentance, but he gets very specific with these folks. So if you look back at verse 8, you know, he says, "...brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" Bear fruits worthy of repentance. <clears throat> a very interesting phrase. He doesn't always you don't always see this particular language being used with everybody. Um, when you see um, certain people fall on their knees immediately before the Lord because of their sins, you don't always see this language, but when you see a religious people show up, frequently the message is something like this, "Where's the fruit? Right. Where is the fruit of your life? You're you're coming out here to be baptized. Let's see the evidence of actual repentance. And then he says something that that Jesus is going to say throughout his ministry. Uh, Do not think to say to yourselves, we are we have Abraham as our father. Hey, we're Jewish. We're within the Abrahamic covenant. He says, don't don't rely upon that. Where's the fruit? Don't say, oh, I was raised in the church. I've been coming to Cornerstone since I was. In my mother's womb. Um, I've always been a Christian, as it were. So then he uses this image of an axe being laid at the root of the tree, ready to be thrown into the fire. Then verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming is mightier, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, some translations say, and with fire. It's interesting. He says he'll be he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit because when you think of somebody being baptized with the Holy Spirit, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So even as John the Baptist is preaching a very stern message, he's actually there's there's kind of a latent hope in there that there's some to whom he's speaking to that are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As as some of these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees are going to repent. And then he says, he turns back to another image, verse 12, for the winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff in a quenchable fire. I actually had to do some research on a winnowing fan because I don't know about you. I just kind of had my mind like a little fan like this. I wasn't sure what it was, but winnowing fan is actually an idiomatic expression for a process. There isn't really a In the ancient times, there's not really a fan per se. Uh, In all likelihood, what we've got is like a, a, a big shovel that someone would hold with either corn or grain, and they would kind of shake it and dump it out in the evening, particularly when the wind was blowing. And as they're dumping it out, the lighter chaff would be blown by the wind and the heavier grain would just fall straight down. So there's kind of like this shaking process you're left with chaff in one pile and some of it would just be blown away, but some of it would be in a pile. And um, and then you have the wheat in the other pile. So winnowing fan is really just a process. If anything, the fan is the wind. Does that make sense? So it's an idiomatic expression for this process. But clearly he's using this image to say that when Jesus comes, he's dividing the wheat from the chaff. He's dividing those who are not just giving feigned repentance, but those who are, are repenting and bearing fruits of repentance and thus proving themselves to be wheat are going to be gathered into the barn. Those that are coming out and feigning repentance or actually setting themselves opposed to Christ will prove themselves to be chaff and will be burned in unquenchable fire. So part of John the Baptist's preparation for the way of the Lord is to lay out the conflict right away, right? If you're watching a good movie or reading a good book, what happens in the opening scenes normally? You've got to establish the conflict, right? What's Is this man versus nature? Is this man versus man? Is this man versus himself? There's various conflicts in any particular movie. John the Baptist is preparing the way. He's got a bunch of people repenting, confessing sin. They're, they're humbled. He's got a bunch of religious people that come out that are identified as people who are not genuine in their repentance. John the Baptist says Jesus is coming and there is a conflict. He is going to divide this group from that group. And so this is part of his preparation ministry, warning them of the wrath. So you have people being humbled and confessing sin and being saved. Other people that are expecting wrath. So that's the in a nutshell or in a grain, shell of grain, however you want to say it, uh, is the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. And so then we have Jesus shows up on the scene and he is now <clears throat> initiated in the way. So let me, ask, let me get, ask you guys one question before we read the next section. Um, why are people being baptized? Baptism of repentance. What are they doing when they come out of the water? Yeah, they're confessing their sins. So I want you to keep that in mind. They're repenting in the waters of baptism and confessing sins. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee up north to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. When the first time we read this, if you've never read this before, imagine you're in the early church or you're hearing this story for the first time, suddenly you find out that Jesus wants to be baptized, you should be like, "What? Jesus wants to be baptized? Wait, I thought everybody was baptizing because or they were getting baptized because they were repenting and confessing sin." And so it should be kind of a shocking statement, right? Jesus wants to be baptized so there and there should be some tension wait a second the way this gets developed early in the book of Matthew it seems like Jesus is the Messiah it seems like Jesus is a holy one he's anointed he's without sin but he's why is he going to get baptized Brian don't you get baptized repent of sin and confess your sins He needs to be a model. Okay, that's really good, Brian. That's really good. You're letting the cat out of the bag there. Good job, Brian. No, yeah, so that's good. Uh, Verse 14. John gets, he gets the conflict. John tries to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So let's break this apart. So Jesus comes, he's initiated in his ministry, first of all, by being baptized. It's a baptism of identification. Just like part of what Brian was saying, he's both setting a model, but also he's identifying with the sinners. In the opening scene, you have people being baptized for sins and being and confessing sin. Jesus is identifying with those that are being baptized. Remember, the Bible tells us. Um, well, let's let's uh, open to Second Corinthians five twenty one. Let's look at this real quick. Second Corinthians five twenty one, where it says, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." Christ already knows at this point where he's going, where his life is headed. That is, he's going to die not for his own sins, but for the sins of others, and so he's being baptized not for his own sins but as a precursor to his death and burial and re- resurrection for the sins of other people. And so he's right out the gate. He's identifying himself with sinners. Just like it says in Isaiah. What is that? Fifty-three, 12? Uh Let's see. You guys know the passage. Therefore, I will divide him a portion amongst the great. Uh, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So he's, he's going to bear the sins of many. And uh, he's also initiated by divine approval. So when the masses were getting baptized, what were they doing as they came out of the water again? Confessing sin, right? When Jesus comes immediately out of the water, does he confess sin? No, he's not confessing sin. In fact, there is a confession that's made, but it's not by himself. It's made by the Father. So he comes out of the water. He's approved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and alights upon him. That's kind of an interesting word. It, he settles upon him. This is, I'm not even really sure what this would have looked like, because Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit came in bodily form. So. So the Holy Spirit comes in bodily form and it says as a dove or like a dove. So when it says like a dove, it doesn't mean it was an actual dove, right? It's just like a dove, but it but it is something that looked like it had a bodily form. The Holy Spirit comes, alights upon Christ, demonstrating this is a Holy Spirit-filled individual. And then the Father speaks, The not just well first the sky is open the heavens are open we're not really sure exactly what that means there's a few different places where we see that in the old new testament what does that look like who knows but um the skies are split apart in some way then the father pronounces this is my what beloved son in whom i am well pleased so beloved this is a, a son who is, is greatly loved by me. And right now I am well pleased with him. Whenever you see that type of pronouncement, this is made upon individuals that absolutely please the Lord based upon either their own righteousness or based upon an alien righteousness. When we consider uh, Ephesians 5, for instance, we're called beloved. Beloved. Right. Ephesians 5.1 speaks of us as being beloved, but we are pronounced as beloved and accepted in the beloved. So we are accepted because we are in Christ. How does he say that again? Um, Therefore, as imitators of God, as dearly beloved children, now walk in love. And there were other places were called accepted in the beloved. So here we have Christ who is well-pleasing. He has so he's he's being baptized as as uh, to identify he's being approved by himself in not confessing sin by the Holy Spirit and the spirit settling upon him by the father speaking from heaven and saying and giving him that heavenly divine blessing. Um, Let's see, we had all this, yeah, Father blesses, called beloved, well pleased. And then thirdly, we see that Christ ministry is initiated by withstanding temptation. So let's look over at chapter four. Let me say one final thing here about the, the baptism of Christ. When John the Baptist is doing his baptism, there's those that are going in and confessing their own sins, that cr- parallels Christ being baptized, not confessing his sins. Um, but then you also have John the Baptist turning to the bad guys, so to speak, and 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 really calling upon them to repent because of the wrath to come. So there's this threatening of curse upon. The Pharisees and Sadducees. In Christ's case, there's this pronouncement of blessing upon Christ, which totally contrasts with the the scene with the Pharisees and Sadducees. So then, in verse chapter four, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So the Spirit alights upon him, and then right away you get the sense that it is pretty quickly hard upon his baptism. He moves from this wilderness, which is uh, in Judea, this is probably a lightly populated area, to a, to a true wilderness, probably Sinai, where he is absolutely by himself. And so let's read along in chapter 4 for this uh, final part of Christ's initiation, his withstanding of temptation. So, 4 verse 1 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry, right? I'd be hungry. What about you? I get hungry when I miss breakfast. I'm hungry right now. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones uh, become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to a a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up an exceedingly high. Mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, as a young believer, I just remember reading through these sections of scripture several times and just thinking to myself what is the big temptation here i mean after all jesus is god right it'd be kind of like superman is out trying to fight some common criminals right they're coming after him with crowbars they're coming after him with their fists even like a bullet right can a bullet harm superman everybody knows that a bullet cannot harm superman and so if somebody's coming and trying to tempt or, or or do some damage to superman what's the big deal these things cannot harm him and so what's the big deal with jesus being tempted by the devil in all these ways because it just seems like he's jesus right <clears throat> so what's what is what's the big deal here? What do you guys think? Well, reading the, the thing was really insightful because I never thought about the significance of him. Jesus obviously could do anything he wanted, but he came as a man. And so right. I was, I was That's good. So, yeah, so Cynthia's saying Jesus could do anything he wanted but he came as a man. Remember last week we were talking about what theologians call the kenosis doctrine or kenosis theory, that Christ, when he came as a man, he laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He became a man in the weakness of human flesh. And so part of what we're going to see as we look at these three different temptations, part of the temptation is for the devil to try to get jesus to use the prerogatives of his deity in order to help his own human flesh does that make sense there are there are some unique aspects of this temptation because after all jesus is the son of god and so the devil's not approaching jesus as if he's just you or me he's approaching jesus with full knowledge of who he is this is the son of god and and the devil seems to be somewhat aware of the plan that jesus has come to the earth and he is not going to insist upon his deity he's not going to exercise his prerogatives of deity and that seems to be where the devil attacks and at the same time we're going to see some parallels and overlap um, with with some of these temptations so so let's go ahead. Let's let's look particularly at the the temptations. Again, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted uh, of the devil. Is is the way he's called initially? Now he has to be tempted of the devil because Christ does not have a corrupt nature. When we look at James chapter one, we are each led by led away by our own desires, right? The devil could be in Zimbabwe, and guess what? You and I can still be tempted because we have these desires in us that kind of incline us towards evil. Christ did not have any evil desires, and so for him to be tempted, the devil had to be present. By the way, it is very unlikely that any one of us in this room have been personally tempted by the devil. You realize that when the Bible speaks of the devil many times, It's using that as kind of a big overarching term for his kingdom. And that it's, you know, if if we've encountered demons, and there's no doubt that demons do uh, organize attacks against God's children, it's probably his minions. But in this case, Christ is going face to face with the actual devil. The devil's not omnipresent, you understand. He's a created being, he's an angel, so he can only be in one place at one time. And so at this he is at, at this particular moment he is with christ at a point in time tempting him face to face does that make sense um and so he is going mano a mano uh, with the devil foot to foot. say it again foot to foot, foot, to foot. yeah exactly Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's good that you brought that up. There, there is kind of a... The book of Luke says that he's tempted for 40 days. And then in Matthew it says he fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. And then it speaks of the temptation. And so when you, when you kind of synthesize the two accounts, actually three accounts, it appears that there were probably multitudes of temptations throughout this 40 days. No doubt some temptation on the back end of the 40 days. And then what we're seeing is kind of a representation of three of the probably multitudes of temptations. In fact, if you compare the order, like the book of Luke has a different order from the book of Matthew, right? Why is that? Because the two writers are basically given us samplings of the temptations and putting them in their own Holy Spirit inspired order for their theological purposes. Remember, the Gospels are not blow by blow histories all the time their developments of theological treatises based on real history. And so when you synthesize it together, um, we're probably seeing a representation of 40 days of temptation from the devil himself. Uh, That's, yeah, so I just told you that. Um, So let's go to the first temptation. (laughs) Temptation. I'm categorizing the first temptation. These temptations are actually fairly complex because the devil's sophisticated and he's tempting a God man. So, um, and so there's lots of different aspects that you can draw in on. I'm kind of overly simplifying the first temptation as obey your thirst, which is the slogan for what? Close, but no cigar sprite yeah so obey your thirst um so in that first temptation we see this now the tempter so here he's called the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god command that these stones become bread so that's the first temptation okay he's been fasting for 40 days if he's exercising the product of the deity already um no problem but remember he's a man who hasn't eaten for 40 days and so this is a temptation take your prerogatives of deity if you're the really the son of god so that's the first aspect of the temptation are you really who you think you are who you say you are if you are it's very easy for you to turn these stones into bread and feed your hunger um, so let's kind of tear this apart so the devil he's called a tempter here. Uh, Bread of stones. I don't know about you, but like bread might not get me. But if the devil came to me and said, turn these stones into tacos. Be like, "Ah, I don't know. But turn turn this uh, uh, stones into bread. Do a miracle for yourself as part of this temptation. You're the son of God. Do a miracle for you. Not for anybody else. Just to feed your hunger. You can do it. Uh, Use your deity to aid your humanity. That's part of this temptation. This would never happen to any of us in this room because none of us are deity. Right? But the devil could tempt Jesus to to try to access his deity in order to aid the weakness of his humanity. Jesus' response? It is written. Now, this is very interesting. We're going to read what he says here in a second. But does Jesus... The one who's the God man who wrote the Bible really need to say it is written. He is the word, right? But as a man and identifying with us as human beings, he is going not just to his prophetic soul, his prophetic mind. He's going to the written word. He says it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god i don't need to access my deity in order to assist my weakness as a human the main thing i need is the word of god that is much more important than me even having bread right now especially being tempted by you devil and so he goes to the word of god the second temptation is Let's see. There we go. Um, we could oversimplify it by saying, because you're worth it. Anybody know which motto this what motto this is? L'Oreal. Right, there you go. I had to look that up. I didn't know that off, I just, until last night. So, you're worth it, right? Or God don't make no junk is the other kind of idea. If you really think about what that means it's and the way people apply it, it's kind of like, no matter what choices you've made to completely mess your life up, and no matter how you persist in your sin to, to ruin other people's lives, God don't make no junk. <clears throat> anyway, the devil here is now called the devil. Let's read uh, the second, second temptation. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Um, now does Jesus in his deity really need the devil to take him somewhere? No, but again, he is not exercising progress of deity, and so the devil has to take him in some spiritual way or some miraculous way. The devil is taking him to this high pinnacle right we don't know it, it, we would assume this is a physical realm we don't i don't know that this is some out of body experience it seems like this would be some physical transportation we're not really sure but the devil tempts him to throw yourself down go ahead throw yourself down if you are the son of god make your father do a miracle for you hey you're the, if you're really the son of god you can throw yourself down Nothing's going to happen to you. Just make God. So instead of tempting him to to, uh, access his deity, cast your humanity upon the Father's deity in a presumptive way. Jesus' response again? It is written. He says, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, Many commentators also point out the fact that in response to the first Temptation. Jesus says it is written. And so then the devil comes along and says, all right, I'll use some Bible, too. And he takes a portion of Psalm 91, takes actual truth, but wants to tempt Jesus to misapply the truth. There's nothing in Psalm 91 that would ever imply that you should just throw yourself out of an airplane without a parachute and expect God to save you. That's not what Psalm 91 is about at all. Right. and yet the devil takes a little bit of truth says okay I'll play the it is written game let me give you some bible and and then Jesus comes right back with scripture interpreting it properly these these are actually pretty pretty subtle temptations i don't know about you it, it's one of the reasons why when you read the commentaries on the temptations of the devil here that people are really all over the map on how to interpret and understand because there's a really there's quite a lot of subtlety psychology and then just realizing the dual nature of christ that's involved in these temptations so then thirdly we have this third temptation which i'm going to oversimplify and say why wait that's kind of an abbreviated motto for snickers right (laughs) snickers says why wait satisfy your hunger now I forget how they say the whole thing, but it's like, why wait? You can just eat right now. Snickers are, great. Snickers are pretty good. I think I overdosed on them when I was younger, and so I don't like them as much anymore. Um, <clears throat> but they are good. I prefer uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, especially on my frozen yogurt. Yeah. My frozen yogurt with Reese's and then some mochi and a cup of coffee. What's that? I'm being tempted, you guys, and a cup of coffee at the same time. It's really good. Okay, so the nature of this temptation, he's called the devil again in this section. Let's actually let's read it. Um, Verse eight. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. The temptation here seems to be, Avoid the cross kingdom now. Hey, Jesus, he's, he seems like he has some idea based upon the baptism and what he said to his mother, what's been prophesied about him in the past, that the life before him is going to be a road of suffering. He's already the enemies have already the conflict's already been set up, right, between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Christ. <clears throat> this is a temptation of the devil to say, I you can basically have your kingdom right now without going through the suffering. Rule in your humanity without the Father. You can rule right now without going through all the things that your Father has asked you to go through. Jesus' response again, away from me, Satan. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, only him only shall you serve. <clears throat> I don't know that it's completely, if we're able to completely understand the full weight of these temptations. Because none of us have ever been a human being that has laid aside the prerogatives of deity, right? Right. And so here's Jesus Christ, who is God and man simultaneously, being tempted by a creature he created, by the way, who is coming to him in total disrespect, right? I mean, if, if Jesus wanted to, right, he could call 10,000 angels. If he wanted to, he could just smash him with his sovereign thumb. And here the devil is coming along, trying to tempt him to use the prognosis of, of his deity, apart from the weakness of his. Uh, in the weakness of his human flesh stay within your lane so to speak i don't know that any of us could completely understand what he went through other than the fact that at the end of this 40 days 40 nights part of the results we see he says away from you satan and what does the devil do he leaves now we need to remember that up to this point jesus has remained within his human nature he's not Operating within his progressive deity. So when he says, Away from you, Satan, and then quotes scripture, the devil's fleeing not just because Jesus is God, but because Jesus as a man has accessed the written word and relied upon his Father. So part of what we should get, learn from this is can we cause the devil or temptations or demons to flee from us? Yes. The Bible tells us in James resist the devil, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you and so this isn't just jesus and all of his superman powers getting the devil to flee this this is jesus as a man causing the devil to flee so the devil does flee and then angels other angels good angels lesser beings come to minister to jesus this implies that this was very difficult look at verse 11 the devil left him and behold angels came and ministered to him why did they minister to him because he needed to be ministered to what's, what's that yeah he yeah he, he's probably just completely wiped out he's still hungry um, these angels show up they're ministering to him this kind of reminds me of the Simon of Cyrene um, situation where Jesus is bearing the cross and in his humanity he just can't carry it anymore. And so they assign somebody else to come and carry the cross the rest of the way uh, to His death. And so Christ isn't just play-acting. There's an old heresy. And I always get the old names mixed up, whether it's Nestorianism or all the other isms. But there's there's an old heresy that says that Jesus wasn't really a man. He just play-acted like a man. And so whenever you see Him like getting tired or needing ministry from angels or Simon of Cyrene. That's not really Jesus doing that. It's kind of like me playing basketball with my son, Samuel. I'm just pretending like I can't swat him. Right. He comes running up. He's about ready to do a jump up. And I pretend like I'm going to try to swat him, but I keep my hand down here. And then he makes a shot and he's like, Oh, I I made a shot over dad's hand. Right. That Jesus just play acting. No, Jesus isn't play acting. He is a man, he is tired. This is this has been excruciating. Um, and then Jesus begins his public ministry. Verse seventeen. From that time Jesus began to preach and say repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or kingdom of heaven. So let's let's wrap up a few tie up a few things and then by way of application here. When you look at the temptation of Christ, you can compare it to the Old Testament, there in Genesis 3, the first Adam and Eve. The devil comes in the form of a serpent, says things like has God said implication, can it possibly be be can it possibly be true that what God said, you know, about the tree and so on and so forth. The devil also says God knows that Or can God possibly be that stingy? He knows that if you guys eat of the tree that you're going to get knowledgeable and so on. So there's two basic temptations that are going on in the garden. Basically, God can't really be true or you've misunderstood him. Secondly, God's really not that good. He's stingy. The first Adam and Eve, but their blame goes on Adam. They fail the test. They fail the temptation. Jesus comes along, Matthew 4, in the initiation of his ministry. The devil comes to him as the second Adam and as the God-man and says, prove who you say you are. You say you're the Son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from this pinnacle. And hey, once you bow to me and we'll avoid all this cross stuff, you can presume upon the Father's promises you're the Son of God. The kingdom plan of redemption is unnecessary. You don't have to go through all this suffering. We can make a deal right now. Jesus met, meets those temptations and he succeeds on our behalf. This is also the doctrine of identification. <clears throat> We're baptized as sinners confessing sin. He's baptized on our behalf, not confessing sin. The Father's well pleased with him. When we come into Christ, he's well pleased with us. We fail in our temptations uh, as a race and as individuals. Jesus comes along. He succeeds in his temptations. He identifies with us. We get wrapped up in his righteousness. So let's finish with these kind of applications here. I'm sorry. Let me go back to that again. Probably having some battery. Um, so according to what we have learned today, why was Jesus baptized and why does that matter? Yeah, to identify with us as sinners, right? Not for his own sins, obviously. So yeah, so I think one of the things is as we've talked about here cornerstone for years as we're preaching the gospel to ourselves and thinking upon Christ think upon his baptism think upon him being going under the water coming out of the water on our behalf not needing to confess his own sins but being pronounced uh, as well pleasing to the to the father and beloved of the father and then the Bible further says you are accepted in the beloved and so we are buried with Christ and we are raised with Christ, right? So part, Christ's baptism can be part of our gospel preaching to, to ourselves. Also, Christ's temptation and success in the temptation can be part of preaching the gospel. I have failed, Lord, many times in the temptations, but Lord, you did not fail. And on my behalf, you succeeded in your temptations against the devil. Lord, help me to say no to the devil and to the flesh in my next temptation. Um, So to be dwelling and thinking upon and to realize that Christ defeated the devil not based upon his own progress of deity. He defeated the devil as a man using the very same resources that we have at our disposal, right? The Word of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we can do battle with the devil. We don't have to have a defeatist mentality and say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Uh, I have no there 's nothing more i can do i'm i 'm irish right that 's just the way i am i 'm a berry that 's just who berries are <clears throat> we can 't change no we we have a new nature so develop your battle plan. you guys have um a handout that we 're not going to go over, but I encourage you guys to go over it over the next week or so. What is your battle plan for dealing with temptation because we 're all going to be tempted we 're tempted in many ways right. But God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And he's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Guess what? We have the written word that Christ accessed. We have the Holy Spirit that alighted upon Christ is within us. And um, and we have prayer and we have the people of God. One of the things that uh, I've been really hit with lately, we're talking uh, in one of our family devotions about how that prayerlessness is basically the attitude of saying, It's okay, God, I got it. I don't need you on this one. So when we're prayerless, and I don't know what it is, but there's this default thing in my head where i hit certain problems and where I just, sometimes I just won't pray about it. I'll start worrying about something, worrying about these days, you know, our kids are in these real transitionary states with one that's graduating from high school and looking at college and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes I'll just find myself you know, thinking about that or even just thinking about where are my kids going to end up with their walk with the Lord as they have to kind of deal with things on their own, in a sense, between them and Christ. That's you know, a great opportunity for me to just say, Lord, I have no power whatsoever. You know all things, Lord, by your grace, would you pour your spirit upon my children, help them, with their eyes to be open to their own sin and their need of repentance Lord, would you give them the ability to move from all the temptation that all of us have to be Pharisees or Sadducees and move them over to want to confess sin? Would that just flow out of their heart because of the movement of your Holy Spirit that you've really convicted them of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Now they see a greater need for Christ in their own lives. Guess what? I can't accomplish that anyway. You know, when I When I'm not praying and I'm just sitting there worrying and then trying to enforce my will upon my kids... Um, I'm I'm a, I'm unwittingly saying that I think I can do it without the power of the power of God um let me just end on this well, a couple couple little things here about I think we can glean from the temptation of Christ first of all no one is exempt from temptation not even Jesus there's no reason to think that you and I will be spared so don't be surprised when temptation comes Temptation is coming, it will come every day, so we should not be surprised. So what's your game plan? What do what are you doing to get ready for the next temptation? Temptation is not the same as sin. So uh is not a sin to be tempted or to feel temptation. Jesus was tempted but he never sinned. And so we don't have to feel terrible about ourselves because we're tempted. We just want to use the resources that's been given to us. Uh, respond to temptation with God's word and so memorize God's word but I would have particularly encourage you to meditate upon God's word um it's one thing to memorize God's word and just kind of check it off for your wanna bible verse time but think about God's word chew upon it think about it during the day keep it before you um use it strategically i have certain go-to verses depending on what i'm dealing with Um, as i'm doing my bible reading you know sometimes all of a sudden i'll start struggling with a particular issue and boom i have my kind of go-to verses this is like a little booklet that i flip through a lot of times this is when i went through a a, to a marriage conference i there was a lot of notes in here that like really impacted me and sometimes when i feel like i'm kind of Just losing the edge, or um, I'll just like flip through this and like just read all the notes, and something will stop, will jump out to me, and I'll go back and spend time on that particular verse. This is a little book I've been reading lately just on the sin of anger. It's like 50 lessons dealing with anger, bitterness, patience, peace, and the chapters are like two pages. You read one page, one chapter a day. And it highlights a certain verse and a strategy on dealing with that particular temptation. And so I'll just kind of go through. And I've been making up these little mnemonic devices because I forget things as soon as I read them. I'm just like weird that way. And so I create this mnemonic device where I can flip through these pictures in my head. I'm down to about chapter 17. So I can pretty much recite all the principles down to chapter 17. The other day I was... About ready to get ticked off at in an inanimate object, and I, uh, I just started flipping through my chapters. One bun, two shoe, three tree, four door, five five, six six. Like, all right, I'm good. All right, we're good. And it's just good reminders of of uh, scripture principles and you know the power that we have to overcome the temptation of anger. Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness there is some, really something to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We're not just, it's not just kind of turn lemons into lemonade and psychological tricks. It's the Holy Spirit fills us. And if we keep pumping our hearts with his word and meditating on his word, that gives fodder for the Holy Spirit to suddenly start making connections for us. You know, I'm not one of these people where I feel like I'm walking around and all of a sudden, like the Holy Spirit whispers in my ear. But as I am stuffing my heart with the word of God, I'll, I'll tell you what, sometimes I'm just walking along or I am I get up, I'm in, having breakfast in the morning. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts making these connections with all of the things I've been doing in the Word. And uh, suddenly I'm just like, man, why didn't I never think of that? It's like something will just occur to me that I just never thought of before. And it's like, man, I'm 50 years old. I never thought that thought of my life. Where did that come from? The Holy Spirit takes His Word and just starts doing stuff. Right, and it helps you overcome your temptations, and again, just pursuing the will of God, if we really want his will rather than our will, guess what? things tend to go in a good direction. It's when we insist upon our own will that we get in trouble, right? Um, all right, so let's go ahead and pray uh, if if there's any other thoughts you guys have you can come up afterwards. this is the final a uh, Sunday school for this particular year. We'll be back in September. That doesn't mean that we don't want you to study the word this summer. Stay on the word. We're going to have a Milton. Are we going to have a reading program this summer again? Do you know, or yeah, so we are going to have a reading program. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness to us this year as we've just studied uh, your word, your faithfulness to us. We pray father that you'd just be with us this summer. I know so many different activities and, uh, different schedules and sometimes unique temptations we thank you lord for just the instruction on how we can deal with temptation the resources that you've given us thank you for your son who is baptized and tempted and has identified with us and became sin for us dying on the cross that we might be bear the righteousness of christ thank you for the righteousness that we stand in we pray that it work itself out in our lives day to day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.